Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Maddie Harland. Maddie is the editor and co-founder of Permaculture Magazine and publishing company Permanent Publications. Maddie has been active in the field of permaculture and regenerative practices since 1990. Uh, Maddie, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thanks. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's such a pleasure for us welcoming you onto the show. Um, Normally at this point in the programme, we would dive into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we begin from that angle because it's proven to be such a huge challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But just to what extent has it affected you and your business? So from a business perspective, overnight... um Pretty much most of our our stores that sell permaculture magazine and the books we publish under the permanent publications imprint closed. Um, So for quite most, we've been disrupted in terms of trade sales uh, for a significant part of this year. And we're just beginning to, to recover some of them. Some of them have been affected permanently some of our distributors were unable to pay us for a significant amount of time over this period so we're talking about like even more than a financial quarter so it had a radical effect on one aspect of our business and of course all of our staff had to move home and work remotely but we had got those systems um, set up, we, we began that process of flexible working from about 2018 because the nature of our work is very digitalized and we just saw the advantages because we were working with so many people from lots of different parts of the world. The idea of the old conventional media office was, was a bit out of date. We have this cloud-based technology. So we moved all of our accounting and administrative systems as well as our our media producing systems into the cloud and Mm. shared information and changed all our software and our phone systems and everything. So, you know, I can answer the phone anywhere um, from my my personal business line. I'm no longer uh, geographically limited and that's the same for my key staff. So in some ways, we were very, very well prepared. We're very lucky. Mm. Um, We also have a lot of digital products. And of course, the online aspect of business, um, both for printed books and um, for digital products, has been boomed. So we, we were able to focus our efforts on producing more of those types of products and um, just kind of like move with the times but incredibly quickly but but like everyone else it it, it was not easy uh, it was very very unstable and very worrying it was impossible to do cash flow forecasts and you know for significant weeks of our lives we didn't meet our key staff let alone our key customers or go to events which is another big part of our our business so huge change Mm, certainly seems like it's been wholesale changes um, within your operations uh, for sure over the uh, the last few months can you see this being the way that things are for quite some time however because the worry is at the moment that even when we do have a working vaccine in place fingers crossed that is going to happen of course and eventually COVID-19 in the next year or two will no longer be an issue the effect that this has had on 
not just consumer confidence, but also people's anxieties about sort of going and meeting people. It could mean that remote working could well be the way of things in the future. And with that in mind, can you actually see a return to the conventional workplace, the office environment as it was? Or do you think that that will never come back? For us personally, it will never come back. Um, And we have to adapt our publishing business to the the technological trends that are appearing. There are, of course, real advantages to remote working from, you know, from an ecological basis in, in the sense that, you know, we don't have all of this time spent commuting uh, to work. So our, our staff have much more freedom and much more choice. They're no longer clocking in in the sort of conventional nine to five scenario. They're working on projects and, and fulfilling uh, deadlines and, and targets and if they choose to go cycling a, 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 in their lunch break that's it's not up to me to police all I want to know is those those projects are done to the best of our ability and that we're progressing as a company so we've very much changed um, the working model of how we are productive as as colleagues together of course, on a social level, there, it creates problems because when you sit next to someone in an office, if they've got a problem with something, they can come in and say, I don't know how to do this. When you work remotely, it's a Zoom call. And even then, sometimes when you're dealing with software, you actually need someone with you or at least a screen share so that you can resolve the problem. So. But also there's an emotional thing that you don't have the camaraderie. So it's it's not good um, from that point of view. So we've got to find other ways of creating um, teams and camaraderie and collaboration in this more digitalized world. And of course, we've got high street needs to be radically rethought and repurposed. We're never going to go back with online business to that old, the high street of old and the same kind of uh, static commerce that we have in town. So we've got to rethink our whole town planning and design. And of course, with pandemics, it, it was predicted that this was highly likely to occur mm. because of the environmental stress, stresses. Um, it, you know, and so this will not be the last. We had SARS, which fortunately died out. COVID hasn't. We cannot say that this won't happen again unless we really get our global house in order, uh, as David Attenborough and Prince William have been highlighting this week. This kind of scenario, because the global environment is so stressed, um, is only going to reoccur. And it is a symptom of climate change. It is. It certainly is. And um, that is the next big issue on the agenda, isn't it? Of course, um, so many people are favouring a green recovery going forward from COVID-19. And it seems absolutely. It seems absolutely does seem seem as if fortunately the prime minister's ambitions for that green recovery certainly haven't been hampered by COVID-19. But it just highlights just how important it is that today's leaders really consider that going forward from here. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, and, you know, scientifically, there is a 93% chance that this planet will be more than four degrees warmer than, than it is today by the end of the century. And that is completely unprecedented in human history and will have incredibly wide-reaching and disastrous proportions. And I don't want to be a merchant of doom, but as someone, a CEO of a company, we have to look longer than short term, uh, five years, and, and look into the future and look at our ways that we trade our technology, where we invest our money, how we curb some of the excesses of, of our resource management and destructiveness on this planet, and, and really think about what is it going to be like for future generations. 
That is the big question. What is it going to be like for the generations of the uh, the future, for sure? And just for those people out there that are looking at this situation and are probably very disheartened by what COVID has done to their employment prospects, as a yeah. business leader yourself, do you have anything to say to those people to really get them to pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? Because whereas we see high street brands, especially some of the big retailers starting to fail, there are going to be opportunities for young entrepreneurs out there to really cash in. There are. I mean, I, I'm at the moment I'm living um, with my, you know, my children um, before they move on. But but my my family are actually um, artists, performing musicians, songwriters, and work in the theatre industry. So I'm acutely aware of how disastrous the collapse of the arts is. And when we think about how much money the arts brings into Britain as as an industry, we're, we're letting it at the moment disappear and, and asking to retrain songwriters as construction workers. And I'm not sure that's going to quite work um, policy-wise. However, yes, huge opportunities. Clean hydrogen. Um, we've talked about off offshore wind, but we need to reactivate it, reactivate the micro-renewable industry. It was really thriving until uh, the feed-in tariff was 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 capped and then um, uh, finished. But but we had a big industry uh, that does need regulation, but of micro-renewable installers. We need to regenerate that and not let it go. We also have huge opportunities with regenerative agriculture um, and, and so much science now that's talking about the fact that we can not only make um, regenerative agriculture economic, we can also sequester vast amounts of carbon in the soil to start the process of stabilising climate. So that that's another area. And I'm sure that there will be other areas of technology that we haven't really fully grasped or dreamt about that will occur because we're in this rapid uh, growth intellectually um, mm. society and, and we have this incredible resource of information exchange that no other century has quite had. So where we are in human history is incredibly dangerous, incredibly exciting and full of possibility and we've got to keep our heads and and really start to look. But, uh, but what I would say to any young person is first of all, we have to do what we're passionate about, mm. um, but we also need to be really realistic about what's coming down the line. And we do have um, climate change, and and it is going to affect everything. So I wouldn't suggest that uh, anyone had big ambitions in um, working for airlines at the moment. That's for sure. Mm, for certain, um, with everything going on in the aviation industry, and um, you're right, there are so much there's so much new technology out there that we do have to embrace that can be so important in addressing climate change. And the Prime Minister, um, aside from his uh, wind power pledge, did say that he'd become an evangelist for things like hydrogen fuel technology that he'd never really yeah. embraced before. So let's hope that there is going to be some positive yeah. movement in that sense, uh, for sure, because. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the other comment I'd make is let's also not get hung up by highly complex carbon capture um, technologies when we have the soil literally at our feet that is one of the most effective ways of capturing carbon in the environment by regenerative management systems. And we've got, we're beginning to get a whole raft of science around that. And, and we need to move with the times and really we need to listen to that science as much as we need to look at our accountancy software as, as uh, company directors and how we do all our software management systems and people. You know, all of these scenarios we have to take in and realise that there are new developments everywhere. 
There are, there certainly are, absolutely. And uh, it's going to be so important because although businesses are struggling to be able to plan for the year, the long term, because of COVID and they're having to be prudent, the one thing that is not going to go away that we have to consider in the long term is the climate emergency. That is the big issue looming on the horizon. And we can't forget that in all of this. We've got to really emerge from COVID determined to resolve this problem because it has had a significant hand in making this pandemic possible. Scott, I mean, that's absolutely the, the bones of the wisdom of this. And, and in many ways, COVID is going to be but a pimple on the beast compared to what could happen if, if we lose sight. But fortunately, there are initiatives all over the world that are coordinating um, the science behind climate stabilisation and beginning to open up to serious change, which will benefit our biodiversity, our ecological systems. And, you know, hopefully, if we've got enough collective power among us, we'll, we'll be able to halt this process in time. But this is literally the, the last minute of of the day for it. Exactly right. Action has to be taken now. And the yep. future is something that I certainly would like to talk about before we do wrap things up on uh, today's programme, because um, over the course of the year, uh, the next year, we know we're going to be stuck in the rut of the new normal for at least a good portion of it until there is hopefully a working vaccine in place. But as we sort of get to grips with that challenge, hopefully leave COVID-19 behind and begin to look to the long term future. Um, what are permaculture's plans and the plans of permanent publications and what is it that you're really hoping to see with regard to the climate emergency over the next uh, few years? Okay, so so from point of view of business plans, we are um, particularly in Permaculture Magazine trying to um, create in every issue uh, possibilities. So, so find projects that are doing best practice work um, for not even the new normal, but but the new world that we could enter if we all embrace some of these ideas. So we're looking at best practice projects and we're encouraging this um, development and, and aspects of sort of practical environmentalism, but, but with vision. So this isn't sort of hair shirt stuff. This is very much about people living healthy, wholesome lives, both in the city and and rurally in this country and beyond. So that's our first move. We're also, we have a program of book publishing. One of the results of COVID is it got a lot of people thinking about food and their personal resilience and how, you know, the supermarkets can empty so quickly because it's a just-in-time system and they didn't want to feel so vulnerable. So we have loads of people growing veg for the first time and, and, and looking at their energy systems in the house. So I would like to see a whole um, support and retraining for the, the sort of household level, level of the economy. Um, we've got so much old housing stock that's leaky and inefficient. Um, I've mentioned micro-renewable programs as well as the big offshore wind and clean hydrogen. Um, all, all these areas can, can be supported and enhanced with government policy and it will kickstart the economy and it will be that sort of green revival that many of us have been waiting for for, for decades. That's certainly and we won't get left behind. I mean, the mm. important thing is not to get left behind by being stuck in our old fossil fuel inefficient ways. Exactly right. Fossil fuels are something that we are going to have to decisively leave behind. And it's going to be a transition, a huge transition over the uh, the next 10 years, because 2030, of course, is expected to be around the time that um, conventional engines start to be phased out, the diesel engines, petrol engines for more green vehicles. So it's going to yep. be a, te- a 10 years of real, real change coming up towards that sort of time. And it's going to be critical to make net zero carbon emissions by 2050 possible at all. And we've got to make the greatest effort not to 
um, create even more division in this country and in the British Isles. You know, we've got to bring every region of this country to to this um, place of development. We can't. It, it the southeast is choked, and and is the it, the change I live in the southeast is so intense for in the last thirty years for example, and we, we need to make sure that all of the regions are involved in this and, and share this um, green process, really, greening process. Exactly right. Um, and hopefully that is something that we are going to see over the uh, the next few months mm. and indeed the next few mm. years. Um, mm. Let's keep our fingers crossed that we do start to see some real positive trajectory toward the Prime Minister's green ambitions, as he's been talking about over <laughs> the last couple of weeks, for sure, because there does need to be tangible action. That is for certain. And I actually yeah. think, Maddie, it would be wonderful at some point in the next year to actually catch up and have you back on the programme, just to see how, of course, um, you're getting on behind the scenes, but also so we can just reassess whether we are starting to see some positive steps towards that green recovery. I'd love to. That would be great. Thank you very much. I think it would be fantastic. I've had such an enjoyable time welcoming you onto the show today to discuss um, your views on all of this. And most importantly, uh, Maddie, until we do touch base again as well, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the COVID-19 woods yet, but let's hope that it won't be too much longer. We sure aren't. We're in the second wave. We certainly are, and let's hope that we're not going to be stuck in this rut for months and months on end. Um, I would also reiterate that message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to think about others and look after yourselves because it does make a real real difference in keeping people safe during this time, and the sooner we're out of this, the better. Um, It was an absolute pleasure for me to welcome Maddie Harland onto today's programme and coming up next on the show we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords having been elevated to Parliament's Upper House in August 2015. And before that, he enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same 
products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a 
had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent, uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.